Jeremy Norton is a firefighter EMT with the Minneapolis Fire Department. He is the current captain, head station 17 in South Minneapolis. He has a book out, Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. He's kind enough today to join us to talk about the book. Jeremy, thank you very much. I appreciate the time, Captain. Hey, how you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Good to be here. A quick question for you. Was your crew involved in the Kmart on Friday when that was burning? Were you guys out there as well? well I mean, did we start it? No, we did not start <laughs> no, it. No, uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, um, it, it actually was my crew first in. I was, uh, I was off on Friday. I was actually in Detroit. Uh, but yeah, my crew is the first uh, first crew on scene there. Well, thank you guys. You guys do a great job, and and uh, you know the thing which is funny is as you know some is some some organizations, some entities within Minneapolis, their, their reputation is not as as stellar as it could be. But I, I think I, I don't know a person in Minneapolis that doesn't love the firefighters and love what you guys do because they they do understand uh, the effort that you guys put in. And and I'm one of them. I think firefighters are great. So thank you for everything that you do every single day. Oh, I appreciate that. I think all. I mean, I think all three branches of the emergency services, you know, the police, the paramedics, and fire. Are all you know generally well regarded on an individual level, but uh, collectively, uh, I think one of the three of us has been having a, a kind of tough run of it. But <laughs> and the paramedics, I think, are misunderstood for everything that they provide. So firefighters just have a big truck, so we we get recognized easily. <laughs> well, yeah, you do a lot of things, and as a matter of fact, that's actually a, a major theme of this book is that you talk about. I mean, th- th- this idea that the, the you know you know firefighters, EMTs. That, you know, I think you mentioned it's like 20 percent of the time you guys are dealing with fires. The rest of the time you're dealing with other things. And and that 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 is a you know, you, you try to give a much more thorough and rounded view of what exactly the job curtails. That's no, that's correct. I, you know, I think I, I try to I try to offer to the public, to the, anyone who reads the book. And understanding, you know, not just of what we do, but that we are part, I mean, as I just said, like we are, we are one of the three kind of the tripod of emergency services that are pretty much the only option that most city 911 systems have. So for all the random calls that go into a 911 call center in Minneapolis and equally in St. Paul, Duluth, Red Wing, Detroit, anywhere across the country in, in cities and towns, you know, with full-time departments, the firefighters go to, you know, fire calls, hazmat calls, but all uh, we we assist and work with the paramedics in many times so that all the 911 calls that are, you know, at all medically based, those those fill up our days and nights. Um, and, and I think there's a good reason for that, because we're centrally located, the stations are set up around town so we can get anywhere quickly. And if somebody is having... A, uh, a critical emergency, which is the the purpose of the 911 system, you want people to get there quickly to stop the bleeding or restart the heart or to carry someone to safety. You know what what I try to push in the book is that we're not like we're not stealing work from anyone one else. It's just that there there is no one else, and so many of the calls that that police, fire, and paramedics respond on, you know, aren't aren't actually you know, life or death or critical emergencies, but there is no other 
place for the calls to go. Like, so I, I try to look at the systemic across the board and look at how that then filters down to shape and influence and affect the individuals. Uh, and by the way, I can attest to this. Uh, in December, I got hit by a drunk driver. It broke my back. And uh, when, when, the, when the trooper got there, he basically said, well, it's going to be we, – we are a shortage of ambulances right now. So I'll yeah. get one out here as we quickly as I can. But I had both Eden Prairie and Minnetonka Fire show up, and the chiefs yeah. came up to me and said, you know, I don't want you moving. They are checking me over. You're not bleeding. Don't move. Wait for the EMTs. And, and that was it. And they were that first line of response because – not because of a failure or anything, but just, you know, there wasn't anyone else to be there until an ambulance got there. Yeah. Right. And now that's and 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 those are those are kind of the structural challenges. And and it's not like any city we live in. We tend to think that our our issues are singular, like like that kind of myopic view. But you know, I've I've traveled to see family on both coasts over the past couple of years. The, you know, the the kind of societal strain is happening across the country because of, you know, a lot of issues with our healthcare system and the financial, like the financial uh, imperatives that are driving for-profit hospitals and the ambulance services. And so there are fewer people doing the work to address more and more calls, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, and that's kind of the other part of what I really am am trying to write or address in this book is to, to, to show like, the complicated nobility of a, a career in emergency services, because mm-hmm. it isn't just the stuff we think it is when we join. It's there's so there's so many layers and there it's so much more complicated. And and the piece, you know, the parts that take a piece out of our heart and really weigh us down are not in any of the manuals we might study while we're in rookie school or in cadet school, you know, and, and that's. And there, we still haven't found a good way to address that because these calls keep coming in. People like you keep getting hit by cars. Somebody has to show up, and that somebody is us. You talked about the training that goes into this. You know, obviously they they talk a lot about this, but is it does it prepare them for the the, the rookies that are coming in? The, the the amount of this is going to be there because I mean, obviously there is a there is a tremendously human response factor needed. By anyone who's in, you, you could get called for drug overdose, medical emergency, fire situation, car into a house, whatever the case may be. You know, it's almost the empathy has to almost be on par with the strength and the courage to go along with it. You have to have this large ability to address whatever circumstance you walk into. How does how does the training uh, you know process that and prepare the the rookies for that? Yeah, I think honestly that. I mean, I want to, I don't think it's, it's really teachable, you know, and that's, and that is one of the, I think one of the challenges. I mean, I write in the book that, you know, you think about police officers and paramedics and firefighters, we all join our respective careers. I mean, I will say here in defense of my firefighters, the police and paramedics just haven't taken the fire or scored well in the firefighter test. So they have to go to the other, <laughs> the other careers. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe not. Or maybe they, they actually like law and order better than, more than just being a bunch of deranged boys. Ca- Captain, don't worry about that. I'm an army guy. We used to make fun of, I make, I make fun of the Marines, right, Navy, right. Air Force all day long. Don't worry. It's, it's tongue in cheek, guys. No offense meant. It's, it's, a, it's an inside joke for you, okay? Uh, but no, but yeah, but in all seriousness, the, you know, the paramedics are very highly trained pre-hospital technicians. They can, 
you know, they can intubate, they can provide medications, they can do all this really amazing stuff on like a rolling cramped, you know, uh, emergency theater, operating theater on wheels. Police officers are drawn, you know, for a sense of law and order protecting the public. You know, firefighters want to fight fire and whatnot. And there's nowhere really that we get genuine preparation for all the things that almost fall under kind of a social work umbrella without any social work training. And, you know, you said empathy. And, and I think that's, I think that's really important because too, I think too many people put up a wall to protect themselves from the squalor and the suffering and all the hard stuff we see. But that, that puts a break between like the human connection gets lost. You know, and I think the other part of it is if we're if we're blindly empathetic, you know, we won't make it till lunchtime because it, all three of these are careers that are steeped in the suffering of other people, right? Every day, any of the emergency responders go to work, we are responding to people having often their worst or last days of life, mm-hmm. plus all the other just, you know, the, the routine maladies and bad, you know, a broken ankle is a bummer, but it's not fatal, mm-hmm. right? You know, so it's all the other stuff, but it is, they're very, very, you know, few, like, sunny, happy calls that I write about in the book, because there really are precious few things that are objectively peppy or happy, right? Mm-hmm. And so being able to make peace with that and carry on and find meaning in the world is kind of each of our individual challenge. You you talked about the, the calls you get called in on. I mean, talk about uh, a little bit more about you, you, two specific calls, which I mean, have fallen down to you, fire departments and, 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 and paramedics at times, which are Drug overdoses, mental health situations. These are situ- these are these are both cases where you know you're you're as you say you're not social workers. You haven't been you know necessarily given the, the training of this sort of thing, but you're having to be that front line contact in cases here where you might be dealing with a drug overdose. You might be dealing with someone having a mental health crisis, and, and that is that's not. I can't imagine that that's something that's easy. You know, you have to kind of go through that a few times to understand what you need to do. Well, I, yeah, great. I think you know, let's just distinguish those two quickly because the drug overdose, you know, is pretty um, objective and academic. You know, we just like our job is to assess the person, uh, you know, recognize that they are, you know, in respiratory collapse, respiratory respiratory failure, provide oxygen, ventilate them, take their vitals, you know, and then provide Narcan or assist the paramedics as they do it. Right. So that that's a pretty simple call. However, the sociological aspects of that and the fact that we're going and finding people every possible uh, nook and cranny in our, in our, in our city where people are, or now where they're just doing, you know, there are a lot more open air shooting galleries where we're finding people just, you know, splayed out on Bloomington Ave, you know, that we respond and it's, 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 it's taxing, it's emotionally wearing, but that work is not, you know, that is not that complicated, right? It's, it's just, it's draining and it's a hard look at people struggling. The mental illness piece is, I think, the one where as a nation, we are really in, uh, we're really in a jam because, you know, since the 70s and 80s, when kind of a well-meant change to how we treated and confined people with mental illnesses, you know, led a lot of people out of institutions, but the, the intended support the medication the family therapy all those other things went away so that's when we started seeing the like the legions of home unhoused or homeless 
and folks with mental illness in very complicated cases. You know, if you don't have if you don't have access to your meds and you're living on the street or in a shelter or under a bridge, that's going to lead to a much more precarious mental stability. So then we end up seeing people having acute crises on the streets. And often those are called in as distress calls or possible threat calls. So the, the, the language and terminology that, that people, well-meaning or otherwise, start a call with because dispatch doesn't challenge really what they're told. They take it you know, with this, the Good Samaritan principle that mm-hmm. everyone's trying to do the right thing, which means then that we roll in, the police, fire, and paramedics, to something that might be completely different from what we've actually got, which is somebody who is under narcotics, uh, having a mental breakdown, uh, diabetic, someone who's um, uh, with Alzheimer's or any sort of like the, the range of possible kind of disassociative or kind of mental struggles um, are, are vast. And we don't get a lot. We don't get much training at all for that. And th- that those have led to a lot of very avoidable but and tragic uh, unnecessary deaths uh, of civilians. Jeremy Norton is joining us. Trauma Sponges is the book. I want to there, – there is obviously a frustration that you deal with in regards to how you deal with a crisis and then how other agencies deal with the crisis. I, there's one here in uh, the, 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 the chapter about ketamine or Killaman where you're talking about you arrive, you're dealing with a guy who's, who is high, he was in an accident there, you're working with him, then you know, you're getting them there, you're getting him to the hospital. As soon as you get to the hospital, four guards jump on him. You know, and it is their, their response is clearly very different than your response was as you're trying to deal with this. And you're talking about how, you know, you, you obviously you can't get into anyone else's lane, but you also there's got to be a level of frustration where you get to a point there and it seems like the good work that you have done has just been unraveled. Right. And that, you know, and that was the case from, you know, that was, you know, and everything I write about in the book, except for things that are kind of legal, you know, matter of legal or public record, you know, are all kind of elisions and, you know, and conflations because I'm never going to, I'm never going to kind of spill the beans on any actual people we saw. But the other part is that we've seen enough of these repetitive calls that I'm, I, it's easy to kind of make a pastiche. Um, I mean, what we know now versus what we knew, you know, a decade ago or actually 15, 16 years ago, and I think the, the call that I actually was on that, that, that I based that on, you know, that we didn't understand that somebody who was under uh, a stimulant, like a PCP or a meth, they're unreachable, right? So, so we really don't have many options. You know, we can try to be chill. <laughs> we mm-hmm. can try to be clever. But really, and shouting doesn't work. Shouting continues not to work, right? And and when you've got to physically prote- restrain somebody for their own protection, say with a head injury or they might run into traffic, that we, we now are better understanding that that can lead somebody into kind of a respiratory uh, respiratory overstimulation, respiratory arre- collapse, respiratory arrest, or um, like you know going into acidosis where they're fighting so hard that they're you know, but they're not unable to move that they actually point like essentially poison their own blood, which is how his, you know, like across the country, many, many people have died while in custody with no one, like without anybody holding them down. Although sometimes that has also happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, but also we misconceive or misconstrue this notion of he's fighting. Right. So the man that we were trying to bring to the hospital was thrashing, but he was incoherent. 
he wasn't fighting anyone. He was, or he was fighting the ghost in his head. Yeah. But the guards saw that and took it as their duty to stop and quell and control. And that's what leads to people dying. And uh, that's where I think the education piece to understand. And then I, and I want to stress on the backside of that, we like, you really don't have anything other than sedatives with somebody who is a, a danger to themselves. And that, and that becomes a, a loaded uh, topic for a lot of uh, yeah. liability factor for paramedics. Well, and you're just in what you just described. There is the complexities you have to deal with, which makes this a fairly compelling book for sure. I'm going to mention the chapter, which is in you yourself, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read the title of the chapter, and then the one thing you put here: the assassination of George Floyd by the coward Derek Chauvin. And you put at the bottom of that. I recognize this chapter might be a draw the reader of the book, but I suggest reading the chapter 12, which I mentioned there, and chapter 14 uh, for a larger context. There, the reality is, is that you are dealing with such thickly multi-layered situations and issues that as you talk about um, on on all this stuff, there is never an easy call. There is never an easy solution, but you also have to be a witness to what is going on around you, such as that chapter about, about George Floyd. Yes. Yeah. That is, um, I, this is it's a, it's an eye opening view because I think especially if anyone is thinking about entering the fire department or EMT that they should read this book probably because I think it will give them a better idea of what they're in store for. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I mean, I clearly wrote the book for more than just you know my my poor children who have to listen to me process this crap all the time. Uh, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I I, I would hope that it. it you know, I, it would it would be uh, beneficial, informative for people who are interested. You know, but honestly, I re- I also really want to help the public understand kind of the crisis in our healthcare system. So everything that you and I have talked about in the past ten minutes, in terms of kind of emergency response and what's happening on the streets, but the other part, you know, is what's happening in the homes. That the way that our healthcare system works means that you know not so much police officers, but, you know, paramedics and firefighters often end up as the kind of primary care for lots of people as we get, you know, get folks from wherever we find them to the emergency room, you know, and that also that our disconnect, our cultural disconnect from the end of life realities means that firefighters and, you know, uh, firefighter EMTs and paramedics are in folks, you know, in people's homes with people who are clearly dying and their families have been unable to wrap their heads around that, or and the doctors have been unwilling to explain that you know stage four cancer is is terminal by definition. Yeah. Like there is there isn't there isn't going to be a miracle you know there isn't going to be a miracle survival. People may last longer than you think, which is why the docs don't want to run into people's denial by saying likely you'll be dead in six weeks or six months. Right? They they avoid that, but they know it's coming, and the families don't hear that second part of it. And so we, you know, we end up responding to homes. And I take one look, or the, you know, my crew takes a look at the paramedics, and we know that somebody is clearly dying. And the best thing would be for them to be on hospice, you know, on a beautiful fall day like this, to sit by the window and watch the leaves change as they take their final breaths, because there's nothing that the hospital is going to do to truly prolong their life in any quality of life manner, mm-hmm. right? And that's the breakdown. And that's you know, and that's what we talk about a lot of the moral injury. That you know that have been kind of besetting the uh, the emergency medicine and hospital staffs 
you know, for years, but particularly through COVID and afterwards, mm-hmm. is bearing witness to this sort of helplessness and all the all, all the suffering and death that we are in, you know, like intimately connected to and yet helpless to change. Captain, I'm going to have to end it there because I'm running out of time. Uh, Captain yeah, for sure. Station 17 in Minneapolis, uh, it is Jeremy Norton, the book Trauma Sponges Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. Captain, I, a great book. All my best. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time today. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on. You take care of yourself, okay? And I hope your back uh, doesn't give you trouble. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Captain. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Yes, you are, are, are.